0: There is an Old Testament and New Testament in the Bible, and it's easy to see them as two completely separate testaments, one about God and Israel and the other about Jesus, but it's really one story. Uh, The Bible is one big testament that testifies about Jesus. The whole Bible is the story of Jesus. God has always had one plan, and we see that plan unfolding throughout both testaments, All throughout the Old Testament, and this is what our series is focusing on, there are these echoes of Jesus. Luke 24, 27 says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, being Jesus, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And so this morning's passage comes from the book of Joshua. Um, Joshua chapter 7. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, now would be a good time to do that. But I want to give a little context before we read the passage of the day. Joshua followed Moses as uh, the Israelites' leader. Uh, the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt and Moses delivers them, there are these plagues and uh, he splits the Red Sea and then he, Moses leads them to Mount Sinai where they have this uh, very dramatic encounter with God and receive the Ten Commandments among other things and then Moses leads them to the edge of the Promised Land, the land promised to their ancestor Abraham and because of the Israelites' lack of faith, they have to wander in the desert for 40 years. And during that entire 40 years, Moses leads them. And they get all the way to the Jordan River, which is the eastern border of the Promised Land. And then Moses dies. He's not the one that leads into the Promised Land. His successor, Joshua... Does. And so Joshua leads into the promised land, and the first thing that happens is God parts the Jordan River like he did the Red Sea. And they cross the Jordan River, and the first city they encounter is a city called Jericho, and they conquer the city of Jericho. And some of you are familiar with that story when the walls of Jericho miraculously fall. And then after Jericho, they go to attack another city, a city called Ai, and that is where the passage of this morning uh, picks up. We've asked Toby Hellman to read scripture, so as Toby makes her way on up, I'm going to ask you if you are able to please stand and face the center of the room, and we stand because we believe that this is the word of God. And so, Toby, whenever you are ready, please read from Joshua chapter 7.
1: But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, Go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, Not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So about three thousand went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about thirty-six of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate, as far as the stone quarries, and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same thing and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth what then will you do for your own great name
0: toby thank you very much you may be seated now i just want to start with joshua's name um, we're all familiar with names, how they get translated from one language to another. So my name, I go by Chuck. Technically, my name is Charles, but in Spanish, you translate that to Carlos. Um, same thing with all of our biblical names. They were if, if, Old Testament names, are originally Hebrew names. Um, New Testament names are written in Greek, because those are the two languages that those two testaments were written in. And um, just want to look at the, the names. Joshua is an Old Testament Name, And the Old Testament, again, originally written in Hebrew. But Joshua is the English translation for a Hebrew name, and that Hebrew name is Yehoshua, or Yeshua. And so if you look on the one side, it goes from Joshua to Yehoshua. Okay, that's going from Hebrew to English, okay? Now, Jesus is a New Testament name written in Greek, um, and in Greek, Jesus' name is Jesus. And so we take the Greek Yesus and we translate that into Jesus. But if you were to take the English out of it and go straightly from Hebrew to Greek, if you took Yeshua and you went to Greek, you would get Yesus. In other words, Jesus and Joshua are the same name joshua is the english translation of the hebrew Yeshua, and jesus is the english translation of the greek jesus but it's the same name and so joshua and jesus literally say share the same name um, and it means the lord saves now i don't know if you ever you know, think about such things, but I do. It's probably one of the reasons why I'm a pastor. But do you ever wonder why God insisted on Jesus being named Jesus? You know, when you read the Christmas story, he tells his parents, uh, you're going to give birth to a son and you're going to name him Jesus. You don't get to pick the name. Why? Why? did?" You know, I, wonder, I I like to think that God has different committees to help him make these decisions. And it, he doesn't, but I like to think he does, okay? And I wonder, what was God's naming committee thinking of? You know, when we name kids, uh, we all have reasons for why we name our kids what, what we name them. Uh, in my case, all three of my kids are named after somebody else in my family. They all have some kind of family name. Um, and so what's interesting is that out of all of the Old Testament names that God could have picked he picked Joshua to name the Messiah but does he just like the name you know is there any reason behind that I would like to think that God just didn't randomly you know open up a name book to decide what to call the Messiah I'm gonna guess that if he went through the trouble of saying you're gonna name him Jesus or Yeshua there's something about the Old Testament Yeshua that would tell us why or at least give us some insight into the connection between these two names. It just makes sense to me. But the name God chose was Joshua, not Moses, not David, not Elijah, Joshua. And again, Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land and he succeeded Moses. And so I just want to lead up to this morning's passage by quickly going back to Moses and then just kinda comparing and contrasting those two guys, okay? Moses, quite frankly, when you look at the Old Testament, Moses was the greatest. Moses was the greatest. He delivered the Israelites from slavery out of Egypt. Egypt was the superpower of their day, uh, led by a pharaoh, that's what they called their kings in Egypt. And Moses broke the will of Pharaoh with the plagues. And so Pharaoh decides, the most powerful person on earth decides to let his slaves go. So he lets the Israelites go but then he changes his mind and so he sends his army after them after they have left Egypt and so Israel is free but now they are being chased by the greatest army in the world and they reach the Red Sea and and they're stuck because the seas in front of them and the army is coming up behind them and what are we gonna do? Well Moses then parts the Red Sea, and the Israelites cross through the Red Sea on dry ground. And the Egyptian army follows them through the parted Red Sea, but the Israelites make it through first, and then as soon as the Israelites are on the other side, God closes up the Red Sea and destroys the greatest superpower on earth at that time, at least the greatest army on earth at that time. And then uh, Moses leads them to Mount Sinai to meet with the one and only God, and he receives God's commands at Sinai and led them in the desert for 40 years, miraculously providing food and water for them every step of the way. And Deuteronomy 34 says this about Moses. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt? to Pharaoh and to all of his officials and to his whole land, for no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all of Israel. Now again, if I were to be on that naming committee, I'm looking at the Old Testament, I'm saying, you name the Messiah Moses. That's what you name him. Because Moses was the greatest. In fact, Moses was so great, that there were many times that the Israelites were afraid of him. Afraid of him. When Moses was at the top of Mount Sinai and the Israelites stayed at the bottom, and there Moses was meeting with God, there was thunder and lightning and the mountain shook. And it was a terrifying thing for the Israelites at the bottom of the mountain to witness. And so then Moses comes down, Sinai, after meeting with God and all this stuff has happened... And Exodus 34 says, and when Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. And afterward, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face, but whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had seen what had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant and then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. Moses' face was so radiant from meeting with God that the Israelites were afraid to even go near him. And so he had to put a veil, cover up his face, so that he wouldn't freak the people out when he spoke to them. He was so great, the Israelites were afraid of him sometimes. And then Moses was always dealing with some kind of disobedience or some kind of rebellion. It seemed like every time Moses turned around, you know, someone is disobeying or somebody's rebelling you know, if you grabbed an outline that was in the back, and if you turn to the back of that outline, you'll see our Bible reading tool that's on there in the back of every week. And at the end of that, I give references of the different instances of disobedience under, under Moses. And so when you, you can look those up later and see, yeah, man, every time it seems like someone's doing something they're not supposed to be doing when he's in charge. The one time I want to highlight here is um, the time when they rebelled... And it was really the last straw for God. Moses had sent some spies uh, into the promised land. They've made it to the edge of the promised land. Um, They sent spies and the spies come back and most of them give a bad report about the land. And so the Israelites, because of that report, they decide they don't want to go into the land that God had promised them. And so Numbers 14 then picks up that story and it says, that night... All the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud, and all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children are going to be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And because of that reaction, God says, you don't want to go into the promised land? You're not going into the promised land. You're going to wander in the desert for 40 years until all of you literally die. And then I'm going to take your kids into the promised land. So Moses, he was great. He was so great that sometimes the Israelites were afraid of him and the Israelites were always rebelling against him. And do you know who that sounds like to me? That sounds a little bit like God. Moses had more in common with God than the Israelites. He was closer to God than the Israelites. Again, he was great. God was great. Sometimes the people were afraid of him. Sometimes the people were afraid of God. Many times the people rebelled against him. Many times they rebelled against God. He had more in common with God than the Israelites. But if we compare Moses with his successor Joshua, we'll see a little bit of a different picture. Um, One thing about Joshua, you can't get through the first chapter of Joshua without seeing the phrase, be strong and courageous. Seven times Joshua is told, be strong and courageous. Again, on the back of the outline, our Bible reading tool, after all the references of the disobedience under Moses' leadership, I also list reference of every time that Joshua is told to be strong and courageous. One of those times is in Joshua 1, chapter, verses 6 and 7, where it says, Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. And if you, when you look up those references in the back of the outline, what you will see is it's not just God who has to tell Joshua to be strong and courageous. Moses has to tell Joshua to be strong and courageous. The Israelites themselves have to tell Joshua to be strong and courageous. Now, if you have to tell Joshua to be strong and courageous, if you have to say to him, be strong and courageous. 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 What does that tell us about Joshua? He's not strong and courageous. He's not. Okay? He is not naturally strong and courageous. Joshua has fears. Joshua has doubts. He is no Moses. And here's what's interesting about that. Is that even though he's no Moses, even though he has all these doubts and fears, he has to be told, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. The passage that Toby read this morning, when Achan takes some of the devoted things, that is the only real act of disobedience or rebellion under Joshua's leadership. Verses 1 to 4 that we read earlier this morning. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. And so the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, Ai, which is near Beth-Aven, to the east of Bethel, And told them, go up and spy out the region. And so the men went up and spied out Ai. And when they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So about three thousand went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai. In the rest of the book of Joshua, There is no other act of disobedience. And even this act of disobedience, how many people disobeyed in this story? One guy, Achan. Achan's the one who took the stuff. And while the entire um, people were punished, only one guy disobeyed. And so the entire time that Joshua is leading these Israelites, who under Moses they are rebelling and being disobedient every time the great Moses turns around under Joshua the guy who has doubts and fears only one guy rebels ever and here's something else that's kind of amazing if you look at Joshua's response after their defeat at AI his response is amazing Look at what he says in verse 7. This is their leader. Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we'd been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Now we've heard, that sounds, that should sound familiar because we just read something that sounded a lot like it. What does this sound like? Remember the story of the spies and the Israelites' response to the bad report in Numbers 14 when they said, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt We're going to put these side, I want you to see this side by side on the screen, because it's almost identical. Okay, not word for word, but basically thought for thought. These are identical statements. So in Numbers 14, when the people rebel uh, of going into the promised land, they say, why is the Lord bringing us to this land? Only to let us fall by the sword. Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. And then in Joshua, in verse 7 says, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan? to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. And then if you go back to Numbers 14, where the people say, wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And then Joshua, what does he say? If only we'd been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. His response to God sounds exactly like the Israelites, and maybe not exactly, but sounds a lot like the Israelites. And if I'm God, I'm like, I caramba, what in the world? The last time they complained like this, they wandered for 40 years. And this time it's not the people complaining. This time it's the leader of the people complaining, just like the people. That's not what you want in a leader. Why did God pick Joshua as Moses' successor? And how in the world did Joshua, when he's doing stuff like this, Never have people rebel other than this one time. And this is the guy whose name God chooses for the Messiah? This is the guy that the Messiah shares a name with? That Jesus shares a name with? What? But if we think about it for a moment, what did we conclude about Moses? Moses was great. Israelites sometimes were afraid of him. The Israelites were always rebelling against him. And Moses was closer to God. Moses had more in common with God than with the Israelites. And Joshua, well, Joshua sounds like the Israelites. It's almost as if Joshua understood the Israelites. That he understood their fears because he had fears. That Joshua understood their doubts because he had doubts. Remember, they had to keep telling him, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. Joshua was a lot like the people. He was closer to the people. He had more in common with the people. Joshua would even identify with the sins of the people because Joshua understood the weaknesses, Joshua understood the shortcomings. He identified with the sins of the people. Joshua literally, in the story, took the place of the people. He didn't wait for the people to complain. He didn't wait for the people to say, why did you ever bring us across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? He didn't wait for the people to say, if we'd only been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. No. He said it on their behalf. He represented the people to God. He took their place and went to God on their behalf because he understood what it was like for them. And because Joshua understood what it was like for the Israelites, Joshua was able to lead them into the promised land. Joshua's understanding of their fears and their doubts and their sins and their weaknesses and their shortcomings enabled him to lead like Moses never could. Think about it. aren't you more likely to follow someone who gets you when you have this experience and you're like I don't know if anyone else understands what I'm going through and then all of a sudden someone comes by and they get it they get what you've either gone through or you're going through and there's that bond that immediately forms because they understand what you are experiencing or have experienced there's something really holy about that well that was Joshua For the Israelites, Joshua understood the Israelites' fears, doubts, sins, weaknesses, shortcomings. And because of that, the people followed. Because he understood them. Joshua identified with the sins of the people. Joshua took the place of the people. And because of that, Joshua led the people into the promised land. And remember, Jesus shares his name. In the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, in speaking about Jesus, it says this, chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. And yet he did not sin. Or in Hebrews chapter 2, in speaking about Jesus, it says, Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We have temptations all over the place. Our temptations, they come in many shapes. They come in many sizes. And many times, the things that tempt us are downright shameful. And it would be embarrassing for us to admit what we are tempted by. And we're not just tempted by these things. We sin. We, we actually do these things. And again, it, it would be really embarrassing for us to admit some of the things that we do. And the bottom line is that we all, many times, I don't know about you, I just find myself in this place, we feel like failures. Because we try really hard to do the right thing. We love Jesus, and we wanna follow Jesus, and we wanna live how Jesus wants us to live, and we really try to do the right thing. And no matter how hard we try sometimes, It seems like we're surrounded by failure. And those failures build up and they weigh us down. The good news is that we don't have a Savior who is unable to relate, Jesus understands. Jesus understands temptation because he was tempted. Jesus understands sin. He paid the price of all of it on the cross. And Jesus, he gets failure. He surrounded himself with 12 disciples, all of whom failed him, one of whom betrayed him. And when he picked them, he knew they were going to fail. And he picked them anyway. Jesus gets us. Our embarrassing temptations, Jesus gets it. Our shameful sins, Jesus gets it. Our painful failures, Jesus gets it. Jesus understands. And Jesus doesn't just understand them. And Jesus doesn't just identify with them. But Jesus did something about them on the cross. And because of that, He is leading us into the Promised Land. In spite of all of our failures and all of our sins and all of our doubts and all of our weaknesses and all of our failings, Jesus continues to lead us into the Promised Land. And that, folks, is good news. It's good news. Now, I'm going to lead us in prayer again and during the prayer, I'm gonna have us do another moment of silence, like we did earlier in the service. And I want you to remember the things that you confessed to God earlier in the service. And when we pray, I want you to envision bringing those things to Jesus and to tell him again what you've done, how you've failed. But I want you, what I want you to hear him say, as you share your sins and failures and all that, I want you to hear him say, I get it, I paid for it, I've forgiven you, you're more than good. Listen for that. Please pray with me. Lord, it's hard for us to believe that the Son of God understands our temptations, our sins, our failures. But Lord, in silence, we're going to bring before you those things once more, trusting that you understand. Lord, we thank you for getting us, for for understanding, for forgiving us, for leading us into the promised land and making us more than good. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.